You are listening to another episode of The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast. I would just like to thank everyone who um, entered the competition to win a bottle of the best Bin O Shiraz 2014, uh, thanks to best uh, sellers in the Grampians region, off the back of the episode of the podcast with Viv Thompson. Uh, and I'm happy to announce the winners of the uh, the competition who hopefully will have received their bottles of Bin O 2014 by now. They were Lee Tran Lamb, Corey Ward, Sally Cantello, Steve Dingwall, Linus Wilson, and Andrea W. Congratulations, guys. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast and for your support of Bests. And I hope you enjoy your bottle. On episode 90 of the Vincast, I chat with Neil Robb from Sally's Paddock at Red Bank, a titan of Victorian viticulture and winemaking, particularly in his home region of the Pyrenees. there Vincasters and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the intrepid wino uh, and uh, of course I apologize for the, uh, the the slight delay in getting a new episode up to you. Uh, it hasn't been easy to chase down guests but uh, thankfully I've actually had uh, quite a lot of people uh, recommend people they'd like to have hear from on the podcast but also people who'd like to share their story because uh, that's what the Vincast is all about. It's about um, interviewing or, or just casually chatting with people who might come from a different part of the wine industry. Uh, so that they can share their story and their their philosophy, so uh, you can find out you know how you might want to get into the wine industry. As, as some of the listeners have uh, have told me that they do, they love hearing about people from different backgrounds. Uh, for this week's episode, I have uh, Neil Robb, who, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, is a titan of uh, Victorian wine, uh, having established uh, one of the first wineries in the Pyrenees region in Victoria, uh, and is a, a much-loved figure in uh, the Victorian wine scene. So uh, he came into uh, the, the Vincast headquarters to, uh, to to share his story. I hope you do enjoy it. Please do stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in contact with both of us to, uh, to share your impressions. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Neil, thank you very much for um, making some time coming into... Uh uh, the Vincast studio, if you can call it that, which is basically my living room, uh, and welcome on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I typically ask my guests at the start of each episode if they can remember their earliest memory of wine, where it sort of really stuck with them and, and made them think that you know wine was something quite special and they might want to sort of dedicate their lives to it. Mm, oh, dear. My father was a viticulturalist and, and also a sometime winemaker. I was sort of grew up with it a bit. Sure. So it was just osmosis. Yeah, there was no sort of great epiphany <laughs> or catharsis. Um, well, no, no sort of progressive sort of thing. I, I was looking at other careers, but uh, sort of slipped into wine. Sure. Mm. What 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 early memories do you have of of being around, um, you know, vineyards and, and and wine, you know, with your father? 
Oh, well, um, my father was the manager at, at Olivewood Estate in Renmark. Yeah. And he was very friendly with the, the winemaker CEO there, was a, 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 an extraordinary man called Carl Wiedenhofer. Um, and so we were always hanging around what was then called Renmano. Right. Which was the, the, the Renmark Cooperative winery. Yeah, yeah. And distillery. They were all brandy distillers in those days too. Yeah. So, I, you know, we, although we were mainly on a citrus property and olives, but um, they did have vineyards there, so I was, always remember vineyard. Mm-hmm. But then my father was uh, headhunted by McWilliams, who owned Mount Pleasant Vineyard mm-hmm. in the Hunter Valley, and he went up there. So I remember all that quite well. Morris O'Shea was was uh, was still alive. He he spent some time there, far out, uh, but lived in Newcastle. Um, so I remember all that, and f- like that was the fifties. And he was employed to basically work in the vineyards. My father, he was um, he was the vineyard manager. Yeah. Um, but Morris O'Shea had sold to McWilliams some years before, yeah. and he he was doing less and less, I think. Uh, certainly not much in the vineyard sense uh, that I recall, but he would be there for vintage. Mm. And and so you grew up in in the Hunter Valley itself, or, or that well, yeah, that, that the Colburn kind of, at the winery, yeah. that, that very formulative. Form, form, formative, sorry. Formative yeah, well, period. the world was different then, of course. It was a much more primitive sort of uh, winemaking system. It was very basic there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, again, my father uh, was... Uh, he left there shortly after O'Shea died. Right. And then uh, he was working in, in uh, Elder Smith's. And he was employed by Remy Martin to uh, set up the what was then the Chateau Vineyard in yep. in uh, Avoca. And Chateau was a joint venture between Nathan and Wyeth, yep. who were Remy Martin's uh, uh, Australian agent. Right. And they would. They, it's a long story. There were funds left over after the war when they couldn't repatriate funds, and. Um, they decided to put them into the vineyard. So he started that up as the foundation um, manager in 1963. So that so was, that was... I actually never lived there, right. but of course I used to visit him there yeah. and do a bit of vintage work if I happened to be there. So were you uh, in high school, sort of in your 20s at this point? 63. <laughs> uh, what would I have been in 63? Uh, eighteen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Young, young yeah, adult. 17. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, and you talked about sort of thinking about possibly other career paths. What were what were some of those uh, possibilities? Oh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but um, uh, whatever. I didn't. I didn't pursue anything. No. But eventually, you you entered the. Uh, I I eventually after industry. after doing several bits and bobs. I went to um, – I got a job at Berry Co-op yeah. um, in uh, Berry in South Australia as a, a seller hand and I was also studying at uh, Glossop High School 
uh, part-time mm-hmm. to do matric uh, uh, chemistry and sciences, physics, mm-hmm. uh, thinking to go to Roseworthy College. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd done humanities at school. So uh, whatever, the Roseworthy College was inundated by uh, applicants at that year. Mm-hmm. That was at about the start, like in 1968 and nine. That was really the wine industry was starting to boom and there was a lot more interest in the viticulture course right? Uh, and the enology course at Roseworthy. So I didn't get into Roseworthy. I've sort of... Um, been grateful for that ever since because uh, <laughs> things took a different path and I'm sort of happier where I am probably. So what was that path? Well, I worked in wineries and um, by various and uh, just on the cellar floor and then I was offered a position at uh, at uh, Chateau Remy, which is now Blue Pyrenees, but at that time it was called Chateau Remy. Yep. Chateau Remy bit set up mainly for brandy production and... Um, they had uh, – it, it wasn't very successful. It really wasn't the right region to grow that. Well, I was thinking that. I was, I was, I was sort of like, why, would, why there to, to – Well, I'm, I'm not sure, though. There are reasons, all sorts of circumstantial things, why they wound up there. Yeah. Um, one of which was water. There was a big gold mining dredge, which was abandoned on the property because it had filled up with water. Oh, right. So there was a big water supply there for irrigation. Yeah. One of the principal factors. They had um, a lot of white grapes, and many of them were a variety uh, which was then known as white hermitage, but as in Italy is Trebbiano, in France it's called Uni Blanc. Mm. So in, in France it's a cognac variety. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, most planted variety and anyway they they saw the possibility to change over to sparkling wine production yep so i went back there um as the winemaker to under the uh consultancy of colin priest who'd been the winemaker at great western for many years yeah and um and so we did uh, we started making the sparkling wine there right okay and you know, obviously, being a rel- you know quite a cool climate, uh, you know, I'd p- yeah, it's possibly a nice climate in the Pyrenees. Back, yeah. back then, a little bit more cool than it is these days. Uh, it's <laughs> changed, ideal for yeah. ideal for sparkling wines. It has changed a little, um, but any of that that was the beginning of that that sort of sparkling episode there, and then after that, Tultani became involved in sparkling wine as well. Mm. Um, so now it's probably the biggest sparkling wine area in Victoria, I guess. Probably, yeah. The Pyrenees. As far as, yeah, high quality volume, you know, yeah. fruit. So so was that your sort of the first introduction to the Pyrenees region? Yes. Pro- yeah, okay. Yeah, apart from visiting my father. Then. Yeah. So, of course, there, when my father went there, he planted some small plots of various grapes, Palomino, because he loved cherry. Mm. Um and some Shiraz, some Malbec, and some Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, just small plots near the house just to do some experimental um, winemaking. But they weren't really interested in red wine at that time. Right. But I, but we, the wines were pretty impressive. Right. 
So when I left there in 73, after the vintage in 73, I left there and bought a little block of land up at Red Bank. Yeah. And, um, and uh, purely to make red wine. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, what, was your, what was your father's involvement at that point? Well, he was still... Still? Uh, he was uh, sort of... These days you'd call him the CEO, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, he was the manager, a general manager. He was also the property manager for the group because they sure. owned Qualtala and they owned quite... They owned Max Cider, Lilydale Cider. Yeah. They, they had quite a lot of properties. Yeah, okay. And so that was when... Red Bank was was born. And, yeah, and we started Red Bank, 1973. And uh, were you already married at this point? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, so, and that's sort of also when Sally's Paddock was born? Well, yeah, Sally's Paddock was our first planting. Right, okay. So, yeah, I married Sally in 1972. Yeah. And... Um, and that was your wedding gift? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> Uh, well, it was a bit of a leap because I actually resigned before I had anywhere to go to. So, I was sort of okay, <laughs> a bit desperate, and I was looking for jobs around the industry actually, but I couldn't find anything that suited, and I'm not qualified, right? Which wasn't so unusual in those days. Actually, there are a lot of unqualified winemakers qual- around. So, qualifications were were kind of an important thing for for, for corporations. They were right. Okay. Yeah. And not for family-owned vineyards. No, no. Um, just just passion and a bit of money. Yeah. I think. So anyway, that 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 was the story. I started up there. Started with Sally's Paddock. Got the. Um, then we worked on that. We started making grape, making making wine in '76, because at that time, you see, Mount Avoca was going, and so were Taltani, but they weren't making any wine. They were. They were selling grapes. Right, okay. And so we were buying grapes from from several vineyards around, Mars Flat, up Bendigo, Morong. We bought grapes from all over the place, um, mostly small vineyard stuff and making a whole range of varieties mm-hmm. um, to see what was what. Was what. Mm-hmm. A lot of sort of, sort of experimental in a way, although we, we had to sell them. <laughs> we were broke. Mm. Um and then at the same time, we're sort of formulating the concept for the Sally's Paddock wine. And when we continuously planted so as to get what I conceived to be the blend that we wanted. Yeah, okay. And we've sort of adapted it slightly since. Um, we planted more Cabernet Franc in 82. We planted another four clones of Cabernet and two clones of Cabernet Franc. Uh, in uh, 1980, I think, and then we planted some Merlot in about 86 mm-hmm. just to fill in a bit of land below the dam mm-hmm. so I wouldn't have to slash it. The um, So it was just, was it the three grape varieties? It's Cabernet Sauvignon, Shiraz, Cabernet Franc, Merlot and Malbec. Right, okay. The original Sally's Paddock, the lower part was promiscuously planted, so that's a mixed vineyard. Okay. Um, and then since then we've planted like set blocks of known varieties, so it gives us more option for for blending in the winery. Was the idea to make one wine, or or did you sort of have an idea the about idea, the blend of varieties you wanted in the vineyard? The idea was to make uh, a generic wine style, mm. 
Um, previously, there'd been um, some blending. There, there, there wasn't much Cabernet in Australia until Max Lake started up in Lakes Folly yeah. and created, generated the whole interest in boutique winemaking sure. here and overseas. Sure. Um, and then, then there were, there were, there were, of course, there were uh, Cabernet Sauvignon at Coonawarra. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, a very popular wine style was Cabernet Shiraz. Yeah. But often Cabernet Shiraz was actually Shiraz Cabernet. Which sure, was sure. Just the way it was described. It wasn't the intention of deceiving. It was just the way it was described. Mm. Um, but that blend was always very popular. So I was looking at that. Uh, and at the time, the Californians particularly, but it had sort of bled over to Australia, everybody was very interested in 100% varietals. Yeah. So you have 100% Cabernet, 100% Shiraz, and people would ask for them and worry about it, you know, and blended was a sort of a dirty word. Mm. So I devised the Sally's Paddock as a generic style, and for many years I didn't have a back label and I wouldn't tell people what was in it. Um, eventually when we needed barcoding and we needed other sort of statutory information on labels, we put the back label on and mm-hmm. said what it was. So, Standard drinks. But it's now labels. Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz principally, then um, the next variety, Cabernet Franc, and then Merlot and a little bit of Malbec. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's always it's always been just one wine? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's always been just the one wine. What sort of decisions, apart from um, what grape varieties to plant, uh, did you make as far as the the viticulture of the the property of the vineyard? Uh, we 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 went for a pretty basic uh, sort of really an old fashioned style. A lot of the wines that were really successful um, in quality terms, like one in particular. Edwards and Chafee had a vineyard at Seaview and mm. near the McLaren Vale, and they had bush vines there. They made beautiful wines, mm. just absolutely stunning wines. Up until about 1965 or so, when there was a sort of a big viticultural trend led by the CSIRO and other people um, who proposed that if you managed irrigation better, you could get three or four times the crop and still not affect the quality. Mm-hmm. Well, this is only partially true. Mm-hmm. Certainly, economically valuable, but uh, you know, some some of those wines prior to irrigation becoming very common in vineyards mm-hmm. were absolutely stunning. Mm. And so, we wanted to go back to the non-irrigated um, single trellis wire wouldn't go back to bush vines it's, it's too hard to manage mm-hmm. um and uh, so just we went back just to the old culture really um there was nothing special about it it was just uh, it was an existing vine culture but um we were just relying on the vine to adapt to adapt to its circumstances they took a long while to come into production of course mm-hmm. at that right it's very. It's rather hard country where we are. The soils are very mean. So, is there much rainfall in that part of the Pyrenees? The, the rainfall is about twenty-two inches, um, but it's and it's sort of fortunate rainfall because generally falls in winter. Yeah. Um, so we have a dry summer. We don't have any disease, so we don't have to spray anything. Okay. 
And um, and so long as we've got an underlying red clay under that vineyard, mm-hmm. well, all the vineyards really. Um, and so we we uh, if we can get any decent sort of uh, winter rain, we we can get through summer quite successfully. Mm-hmm. We don't get huge crops, of course. Mm-hmm. So at the time that um, Sally's Paddock was first started, uh, I think you said that um, Manavoka and Taltani, they weren't actually making the wine themselves? No. Manavoka was specifically set up to sell grapes to, to what's now Blue Pyrenees. Yeah, okay. Taltani was, uh, was set up uh, by John Goulet, really, to be a, a, like an Australian... Bordeaux Chateau right. style. Which is very interesting when you think, you know, to have yeah, well known it is for but, sparkling. But they wines. didn't they hadn't built a winery. Right. And they didn't start making wine like David Honan was the man he wasn't the original manager because it was originally owned by the Olivers. Uh they started it up with Wally Henning and then sold it to John Goulet seventy two, I mm-hmm. think they mm-hmm. sold. Um and at that time, they got David Honan was the manager who eventually started, started Cape up uh, Cape Mentor. Yeah, and he w- he made wine in '76. Made beautiful. It was a great vintage '76. Um, he made some beautiful wines in '76, but he left shortly after that to go back to Cape Mentor Vineyard. Mm. And um, uh, so we were we was, but but they really didn't have a winery. He was making it in a cave in the hill. Wow, <laughs> which is still there. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, but those wines were pretty good. Then uh, they started. They built the winery. I can't tell you when they built the winery, but I think it was about was it? Oh, about seventy-eight or nine. I think mm-hmm. seventy-eight, something right. like that. Yeah, it'll be on the record. So um, at this time, was there kind of people an awareness for? the Pyrenees in Victoria as far as a wine region? Did, were, were, were people, oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah, it became very popular very quickly. So Sally's Paddock became popular very quickly. Yeah, okay. And uh, and, and there was this very close association with Remy the was sort of known. Yeah. And, um, and they were producing, they were bottling reds. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to remember... There weren't that many wineries around. Right. And the Yarra Valley had, like, I think Yerringberg was operating. Yeah. And Yarra Yering. Yeah. Mount Mary. Maybe Mount Mary. I think that was Peter McMahon might have been going at several, but that was about all there was in the Yarra Valley. Yeah. Um, and there were only about six or eight boutique wineries. Yeah. It was uh, like Lakes Folly, Balgani. Um and then those guys, Herringberg, but that, of course, had been like a traditional sort of farm winery, really. Yeah. <coughs> it had always been there. But the actual, uh, like, Bailey Caritas mm-hmm. at Gary Herring and Doc Middleton. Um, so they, were, they created a lot of interest. Right. The boutique wineries and Sally's Paddock. So we, we sort of became well-known very quickly Sure. at that time. Sure. I mean, when Roy Moorfield had the first Victorian winemakers exhibition in, uh, 
what year would that have been in? 1979, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 35 wineries there. From Victoria? They were all the wineries in Victoria. Far out. 35 wineries. And that was it. And now there's... Now there's 840 that we yeah. know of. Not to mention all the little brands, you know, people who just bought some grapes and, you know, trying the hand of yeah. wine, yeah. So at that time, you know, the, the Pyrenees was, was very well known because, sure. because there were so few wine regions. Mm-hmm. Geelong hadn't really started. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, the best were at Great Western, and Great Western was there. Yeah. And the Rutherglen was there. Yeah. But that was it, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Mildura, of course, there were that, and there was um, there were wineries at Shepparton, but they were sort of you know bulk sort of yep. producers, volume yep. producers. Yeah. So the small boutique wineries attracted a lot of attention because we were creating a whole new quality style. So to, to a large extent, off the back of this was that was when you know in the nineteen eighties when there was a lot of you know new wineries being established, new vineyards being planted. Um, you know, companies both Australian and overseas invested and started wineries, you know, like the Yarra Valley just really took off in, in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, but, but in, in the, in the 70s and early 80s, was that there was a lot more taste for red wine? Well, yes. It was before French benefits tax. <laughs> so, you know, and business by and large was booming. Yeah. You know, after the credit squeezes in the 60s, you know, the, the, the economy really took off. The whole complexion of business changed, really, yeah. and became much more modern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of business happened over lunch. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was, you know, the so-called baby boomers um, were really... Uh, most interested in wine and took it up with a vengeance. You know? Yeah. And the bag in the box came out and, of course, that was it for the barbecue. You just grabbed a... And picnics. Grabbed a pack and, uh, you know, a lot of people you wouldn't have taken for typical wine drinkers um, really became interested in wine and started to buy expensive wines and and that was when the whole thing took off, really. Mm-hmm. So... Um when when the sort of the brand I guess uh, launched was it just the one wine you said you were buying other fruit as well and and playing yeah around? we had uh, and still have you know a range of uh, of varieties uh-huh. but we don't we don't take many grapes from other vineyards these days we, sometimes sure yeah we were getting some Pinot from down the road uh-huh. uh, for export. And the vineyard next door, we're buying some Shiraz from them mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes Petit Verdot. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're really not particularly interested in in that, but we have quite an export business. And so we, you know, sometimes it's easy to to buy grapes. Mm-hmm. So how, how long did it take to sort of establish a... An export business. What, what, what was your first export customer? What, what was the country that it went to first outside of Australia? Uh, I think it was Shanghai in 86. Wow. Yep. And uh, then we sold into London and 
Oh, we, we, we got spread around quite a bit then. Now it's all changed, but most of our exports in, in China, by volume, mm-hmm. not by value, we lost America and the GFC and all that. The Australian dollar bill. Brew yeah. about the overripe, you know, fruit bomb wines. Parkerized wines, yeah. Well, the, yeah, that sort of wrecked us there, even though we don't make that style. It sort of ruined the market. It wrecked Australian wine, unfortunately. Yeah. That, was, that became the kind of the association. Well, now is the other association, is the sort of Yellowtail Association. Yeah. Critter, um, critter wines. And, uh, but it's coming back. I mm-hmm. mean, people get around, people travel these days, so the Americans are coming back on the quality wines. Uh, I'd like to get back into the East Coast anyway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're selling wine, Japan... Hong Kong, of course. Singapore was a good market then, less so now. Um, England. But now it's altered. We sell a lot of wine to the south of France and Germany. Wow. Nothing to England. South of France and Germany. South of France takes all our cheap Pinot Noir. <laughs> and uh, China takes all the expensive Pinot Noir. Right. Germany takes a lot of Shiraz. We sell into five-star hotels there. Mm-hmm. Their export brand. And a little bit of Sally's Paddock, uh, mainly to Monaco, Cannes, around that part of the world. A um, little bit to Japan, uh, a, bit to Chi- a bit to Hong Kong, and but we had a lot of sales into China, but private sales mm. uh, to companies mainly. After the crackdown, we're doing more distribution business, but we're doing it through our Hong Kong agent. Yeah. Um, because it's easier to manage that way. We still get a lot of private sales, mainly companies that mm-hmm. bought gifts, you know. Um, what else have we got? A little bit of Japan. And uh, not much to Singapore. We'll probably start up again in Singapore this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we want to make a bit of a drive later in the year to try and get back into business in New York. Mm-hmm. So uh, over the years, how did, sort of, how did Sally's Paddock and how did the wine... I guess philosophy changed. Did it, did it change very much? No, not particularly. No, <laughs> no, not well. What, a little bit more what? sophisticated. I think originally we might have been using a bit more new wood, and then we we started to use a bit less wood. We 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 mature wine in punch and size, so as we don't have to move the wine around a lot. Okay, and so we don't sort of have the concentrated wood flavours that. A lot of wineries use but bariques, of course, so they get very concentrated new wood characters. Yeah. We never went much for the new wood character. Some of it in balance is, is desirable. Yes. Um, I think with some of the vintage, bigger vintages, like, like 2016, particularly good vintage, I think we'll probably invest a bit more in, you know, we might go up to 30% new wood, for instance. Okay. For some of those wines. Very spectacular Malbec in uh, 2016. Mm. I think it was really worthwhile investing in some some new wood for them. Yeah. Um, but apart, that philosophy sort of moves according to the circumstances. Really. Of course, yeah. It depends on the vintage a bit. Um, but no, in a general sense, the philosophy stayed the same. We still want to make a wine that's drinkable, you know, 
a lot of people sell a Sally's paddock and it does improve with age. Yeah. And a lot of our wines improve with age. But in the end, they've got to be drinkable. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's got to be drinkable within a reasonable time frame. So you want people to be able to appreciate them in their youth. If they want to drink them now, they should be able to enjoy them. But you know that the wine also can see benefit with some cellaring. Well, it depends on your palate. A lot of people these days are used to drinking young wine, so they're quite happy with it. Yeah. And and when this wine, when it's young, is quite palatable, but it goes through a bit of a dumb period often. Yeah, okay. While it's maturing, and then it takes about eight to ten years to come out of it, and then it matures properly and sure, and starts to look really good. Sure, as a mature wine, but because of like for various circumstances, there's a whole generation of people, two generations, who are actually not used to matured wines. No, and they they're looking for a lot of the young winemakers making a, a lighter, fruitier style. Yeah, that's very easy to drink, and yeah. I think. Economic circumstances are forcing that too. People are obliged to 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 do their stock turn quickly. Sure, because um, it's pretty competitive. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I think that younger people um, do have a, a taste for those those fresher wines, and so I guess if people are, are happy to enjoy that style of wine, then why not kind of go for that? And and as you say, get some return on investment a little bit quicker. The, the economic uh, complexities of sitting I mean, on the wine. There's a place for everybody. It's exciting, I guess. It's, you it's, know, that's, I mean, there's all sorts of styles of wine in different sure. regions, you yeah. know, and the regions all have different characteristics. Even within the Pyrenees region, every winery has different viticulture and also a different uh, winemaking technique and philosophy. So there's a big range of wines and, you know, there's, well, there's six main wineries mm. in, in the Pyrenees and a lot of small ones. Yeah. And uh, it's a, a lot of diversity in wine style. Yeah. Because we just had um, a couple of major master classes in the Pyrenees on Cabernet. Okay. Because it's, it's, we're coming around to the belief that, that the Pyrenees is really uh, perhaps the principal Cabernet blend region in Australia. Um so that's or, a very, one of, that's, or one of them. Okay. <laughs> you know, but in its own style. But it, it's possibly, it's, uh, it's underappreciated as far as a, a Cabernet blend. Well, that region. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit unknown. It sort of slipped back. Um, having relatively few wineries. Sure. Uh, it was never big on promotion. I think Taltani were more interested in export at one stage, so they sort of didn't involve themselves in the group for a long time. Mm -hmm. But the group's got back together a bit more now and we're doing some more promotions and yeah, and uh, we, we should do better in the future, really. Well, speaking of the future, um, you obviously have uh, your daughter working. Um, yeah, Sasha. Uh, how, how long has she been involved with... Um, 2012. Oh, well, she'd been involved all her life, I suppose, but... She did uh, a course at Charles Sturt. Okay. And then she worked in Germany. She worked in California. Uh, she went as an intern to a, a very good winery in the Sonoma Valley. Um, and they, anyway, they got her to come back as the assistant winemaker. Wow. Then I had an assistant, um, Scott Hutton, who was a great guy. Unfortunately, he got lymphoma and... Um, 
had to have the treatment. Mm. He's fine now, but his sort of life has altered, mm. and he now lives in Boron Bay and brews beer. But he, uh, when he got, when he, when he eventually said that he wouldn't come back uh, full time, uh, Sasha said she'd come back. Right. So we're in the process of doing the succession thing to give her the winery. Right. Okay. Uh, I have other children, but we have other property. Um, so she's been making the wine there since 2012. Right, okay. And did you um, strongly encourage her to go and get experience working no, in vineyards overseas? I encouraged them to go and get a decent job. <laughs> get something to actually earn a bit of money from. Yeah. I, no, <laughs> I, never really, I never really pushed them, but they grew up in the business, uh, made up their own minds, really. Right. And... Uh, no, I didn't push them to it. It's a, it's a bit of a choice. It's a sort of can be a precarious business, a seasonal, you know. It can be agricultural. But I think uh, you know a lot of listeners would probably agree that maybe you're not going to be a superstar, famous person. Maybe you're not going to you know be a millionaire. But geez, you can have a good life. You know, it it can be hard work, but you're with pe- yeah, well, other people who are passionate, and you get to drink lovely wine, and you know, very often eat lovely food and visit beautiful wine regions. Yeah, you can do that. Um, yeah, a note of caution, though. I mean, I think there's, there's some people who became hobby wineries, wound up investing too much, wound up borrowing too much. And yeah. The lifestyle considerations are sort of um, don't balance out with the the, the trauma and the drama. <laughs> I think you have to have your eyes open. Yeah. And and also, I think people look at life in the country, and if you don't grow up in the country, I think it looks different to the way to the reality. Yeah, you know. And and people, I think a lot of people have come into that region to start wineries and do this and do that. Yeah, and and most of them don't stay. No, you know, it's it's country life is a bit violent. <laughs> yeah, a bit a bit too real. Well. It's okay if you're used to it, but yeah. but people from outside, some take to it, but but often if you grew up in the city, it's not easy to mm-hmm. to come to grips with it on it in the long term. But it is, you know, it's a it's a lovely place to visit. Um, the Pyrenees is it's not too far out of Melbourne, and um, is there a bit of a booming kind of tourism industry in the Pyrenees? Are they trying to push well, that angle as well? We're right on the edge of 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 that sort of circumference if you like the the tree changes haven't quite got to to area some okay. have yeah but but not in a boom sense not no. that they're sort of taking over the township of avoca or right um although it's always been a place for retirement people have, a lot of people have, have retired to avoca yeah um over the years um no, I think there's sort of sad for the Pyrenees in a way because when they did the jigsaw um, system of tourism, Victorian tourism, and they reformed the boundaries of the tourist regions, mm. we actually got left out. Oh. The Pyrenees got left off the map a bit. And we've been sort of, we were with goldfields for a while, and mm. then we were put with the Grampians. Grampians. Yeah. And now we're going to Ballarat. We're going to become part of the Ballarat region. Okay. Um, they, they're more interested in having a wine region on their doorstep 
Um, but, you know, the Grampians had their own sort of uh, fish to fry over there and we didn't sort of fit into their plan really because <laughs> they're really, well, they're located on Halls Gap and, and that sort of tourism, we're just too far away from them. Really. Yeah. So we hope hope for the best in the future because it's not that far from Melbourne. Mm. Um, but but you it, have a you have a cellar door and you're open. No, yeah, we seven have a cellar door. We're open seven days a week. We have a little deli. We do ploughman's lunch and mm, yeah. a cheese plate and mm-hmm. pretty simple sort of uh, light lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we're, we're we're sort of busy, but. Um, at patches, but we could be busier. That cellar door. Well, part of our model when we set up was to do um, about. I think it was supposed to be twenty five percent by volume cellar door, which would have been about thirty percent by profit or more. Yeah, and it's not that at the moment. Um, it'd be nice to get back to that because that was the sort of economic model for us that made it all really. Worthwhile. Well, I remember from my um, my wine business studies at the University of Adelaide, they they said that I think like twenty five thirty percent of of sales through cellar door or direct yeah. sales was uh, an ideal model. Yeah, well, of course, um, with the proliferation of wineries right across Victoria, uh, particularly Geelong and Mornington and Yarra Valley, I guess they get a lot of attraction. Um, the, of course, the major hotels and the tour operators really want to get people back into the city. Yeah, day trip um, that night, so it suits them to 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 have the the wineries much closer. Yeah, um, I don't know that we're that unhappy about that in our area. I don't think we're that sort of a tourist region, really. Mm. Um, we're, we've got a different sort of an experience, uh, uh, but we're getting more and more. Like uh, the the four wheel drive sort of group, oh yeah, of tourist, you know, that are brought in by some of the operators, Mm-mm. but they tend to be smaller groups, and uh, or the minibus sort of, yeah, tour that sort of suits us better. We don't want to be when we're not equipped for a big volume of people through the place. Oh, believe me, I worked for a year and a half at, at in the Shandong cellar uh, door. Uh, yeah, well, they, weekends were fun. They, they put a lot of people through. Yeah. A lot. Um, but uh, look, I, I would absolutely recommend people head out to the Pyrenees because it is a, a beautiful region and I think uh, it, it is. A, I, I feel that it's a bit neglected. Um, it's not uh, a region that gets talked up enough uh, in Victoria because, um, you know, the wines are extraordinary and um, and I'm sure you're going to find some wonderful hospitality uh, if you do visit. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much for for making some time to, no, to thank you, James, today, and and for sharing. It's interesting, but very few people take an interest these days. <laughs> well, that's why that's why I wanted to get to introduce people to all the wonderful stories well, and all the wonderful right. personalities. But uh, I um, if, can you let me know? Um, do you do much sort of online uh, apart from the website? Are there any Facebook accounts or um, kind of thing? Yeah, the winery has a Sally's Paddock. There's a Sally's Paddock. Um, Facebook address this uh, www.sallyspaddock.com.au website. Yep. 
We do online sales on the website. Okay. Um, and uh, the Facebook is just for information, sort of, mm-hmm. you know. Just to stay connected. Interest. Uh, I think that's just Sally's Paddock. We might have a Sally's Paddock Twitter address too, but I'm not sure what happens on that one. Um, I have enough trouble dealing with my own <laughs> tweets. <laughs> the, uh, uh, But... Yeah, otherwise, really, it's a, it's just a question of visiting. Yeah, absolutely. There's a Pyrenees.org website for, for general Pyrenees information. There's a good tourist information centre in Avoca. Uh-huh. Um, so it's we're not hard to find. We're only two hours from Melbourne, really. It's not that far. Come on, guys. No excuses. Uh, but thank you very much, and uh, and I look forward to coming to visit myself. Yeah, thanks, James. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And, of course, thank you to Neil for his time and his fascinating story. I do hope you uh, let him know how much you enjoyed this episode. Of course, you can follow me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And the podcast can be found on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, head to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. Hit that like button and you'll get all the updates as I share them. Uh, I'd love for you to visit me on YouTube and the uh, Intrepid Wino channel uh, where I post lots of videos, including many, many Let's Taste videos. And I'll also be sharing my Let's Taste of the Sally's Paddock very soon. Uh, if you could subscribe to the podcast, that's the best way to stay in touch uh, and make sure you get the newest episode as it becomes available. And if you do subscribe on iTunes or any other podcast sharing app, uh, please do give me a rating and a review because it's great feedback and it helps uh, grow the podcast. All that information is available uh, on intrepidwino.com as well as lots of different writings that I've done in the past uh, and uh, I'd love for you to get in contact and and share your impressions. Uh, I look forward to having you on future episodes, but until then, bye.